the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab Premium, number 246 for February 25th, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the second edition of Mac Geek Cab this week. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. And on the other end is... John F. Braun in Fairfield, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> Having trouble remembering where you are? No, there's a lot of Fairfields. Right oh, now I'm true. in Fairfield, Connecticut. Okay, as far as now, I know. see that sometimes in Twitter and stuff, and people are like, you know, this is happening in Fairfield. And I'm like, it is? Oh, my God. Oh. Different like Fairfield, Alabama. Or Fairfield. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think every state has one. Maybe. Maybe uh, we could do a survey and figure out uh, how many states have a Fairfield in the middle. Durham. I think there's a Durham, North Carolina. There, there's a Durham, North Carolina, which is one letter different on the uh, the old address there. So very, uh, you know, and, and that one, I think, is is larger. There's a larger city. So it, it often confuses people yeah. when they're when they're not paying close attention. But anyway, uh, we're not the Postal Service Geek Gab, though. Maybe we could be. No. Uh, but we won't be. So we have uh, we have lots of great stuff to go through, and and then let's just start, shall we, John? Shall we dive right, dive in. right in with? Uh, let's go with Austin first here. Hi, John and Dave. Austin here from Easton, Connecticut. You were talking a time or two ago about getting the startup chime uh, to be either loud or soft. Um, the circumstance that particularly interests me is to be able to control it at the time I'm starting it up, not having to make the decision at the time I shut it down. Can you figure a way of doing that? Thanks. Uh, so, and, and John, I, I, this is, there's a couple of loaded things here because I, I know you've got some answers that I'm not privy to yet. We like to, when we do the pre-show prep, uh, sometimes we'll go through exactly what we've, what we've found. And other times we just like to surprise each other. So today, John has lots of surprises in store for all of us folks. So, uh, oh, yeah. but on this one, I couldn't come up with an answer here. So my only thought was, well, if you want to mute it, you could take headphones and plug them into the speaker jack. That would, you know, effectively render the speed, disables the speakers. And then that way you're not, uh, you know, yep. making this sound. So that that was that was my thought on this. And certainly uh, that will work. But. And there As is a matter of fact, Dave, it will not. It won't. It will not. I tried it. And, and actually, Austin is someone that I know. And uh, we, we okay. talked about this face to face, actually. And I suggested he uh, and that was my suggestion to him as well. Because really? based on my experience with earlier Macs, if you plug in something into the uh, speaker or headphone jack on the Mac, it'll disable the startup sound. Now, I did extensive. No, 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 wait. To be fair, it doesn't disable the startup sound, but it, 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 it reroutes it. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. It should reroute it. It does now, on mine. On your MacBook Pro? Correct. Same model you have. And you're not using the preference pane? Wow. What the silences, the starter. Okay. Uh, uh, all I'll tell you is what I did. So I went through okay. numerous tests. I tried every startup sound. Or I'm sorry, every startup sequence, you know, you hold out, you can do, um, uh, you, know, you know, verbose. Ver no, I, I absolutely. Maybe I absolutely, it doesn't. Because I absolutely verified. I had my uh, Eddie Modix plugged, in, plugged into my machine. Yep. Okay. I disabled that, that startup 
uh, pref pane that disables the sound. Yep. And I thought, yeah, of course this is going to work because it's it's done this on other Macs. Right. It did not. Maybe it they were absolutely online. they hmm. were absolutely plugged in. And when I restarted the machine, it made the chime through the speakers, but not through the earphones. Yes. That is correct. You know, I've always just assumed, because I have speakers plugged into my MacBook Pro, I've always just assumed that the startup sound comes out of the, the you know, the bigger speakers as opposed to the little ones in the MacBook Pro. But I, I, I've i never challenged that. So it's possible that I've been living with a, a false assumption based on, on, you know, previous Mac's behavior. So is there an answer here, is, I guess, is the question, John. The only... For without running a piece of software that fiddles around with something in the system and the pref pane, uh, hold on, eh, yeah, it's called startup sound. I found no way if I disable that. I found no way. I tried every startup key um, that you 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 could imagine. Um, C, D, um, you know, Command V. Uh, for verbose, command S, um, shift, which, uh, and none of those change the fact that it makes that startup sound as soon as the machine starts up. Interesting. I went online, I looked. Now, some people even suggested, and, and while it's true this worked on prior machines, like I found one that I thought, ah, oh, this is going to work, is on earlier machines, the Motorola machines, if you held down the mute button, okay, that would mute it. It did not on my MacBook. I did both the mute button, which is a F9, I think it is, or... Uh, yeah, whatever, right, whatever it is on your particular keyboard. F10, and I even did function F10. I, I tried everything. So so this is like an uber geek challenge. Huh. Um, if anybody knows a way short of ripping out, you know, <laughs> reburning the firmware or, or you know, uh, cutting the wires, uh, I, I tried everything. Okay, I thought so maybe there's one key combo. Yeah. Maybe there's a secret one that does that, but I tried all the published known uh, you know, startup modifiers that will make your Mac, you know, start up in different ways for, for various reasons. And every one of them did the chime, even with uh, earphones or headphones plugged into the speaker jack. So I'm afraid, you know, I exhausted everything that I knew. And, and based on what I saw online, there are a number of people that are really aggravated by this because the, the, then the response was, you know, from the, uh, I'll say the fanboys or fangirls. Well, of course you want to hear this sound because, uh, or why do you need to restart your machine? Because the, 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 the sound does do something useful and that it does make, let you know that the machine has passed at least the rudimentary, yes. what they call poster power on self-test. Yeah. And maybe yeah. Apple doesn't want you to disable that. They, they decide that it's in your best interest huh. not to turn that off. Now, but, but you can using um, the thing from Arcana Research, right? The startup sound prep pane, the third party startup sound prep pane, that will yes. disable it, right? Okay. That does it because, uh, and, and I got to dig into what that is doing, but I don't know if there's a way to get it to do what it's doing ahead of time, ahead of time or, or in real time, I guess ahead of time is what it is doing, right? It's, it's doing it's something. So yeah, I wonder, okay, so let, let's, and, and I'm going to make an assumption here that whatever Arcana research uh, is doing with this startup sound prep pain can be done from the command line. Right. They're they're writing something to PRAM or NVRAM and and there is a way to do that at the command line. Although I guess either way, and I was gonna say you go into single user mode and issue the same command, but all of that happens after, after. the post, the power on yeah. self test. I do believe what they're doing, but we'll look into it more, but I believe yeah. what they're doing is something in the P I think it's a setting in the PRAM. Okay. Yeah, but which would make sense, sure. But sure. you can't get to it. 
until after you hear yeah. startup chime. Yeah. So Austin, I'm afraid there is no way to do this unless you start up your machine at least once and and hear the huh. chime. Yeah. It is it is annoying though because if you're in a you know if you're you know people are sleeping or if you're in a classroom or right. something like that and you don't know about this pref pain then uh, then then it is a, a a hassle. I mean I suppose you could try to cover the speakers up. Or cough or really loud, or like I, I get get some of those um, those little poppets. You know, you buy them around the Fourth of July. The little they're like uh, gunpowder wrapped in white paper, and they look like well, frankly, they look like little sperm cells. But um, actually, they look like very, 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 very large sperm cells. But uh, you take them and you throw them on the ground, and they make a, a very loud sound. So what you do is you get a handful of those and you throw them to the other side of the room at the moment that your Mac's going to start up, and then nobody will notice uh, that your Mac made any noise. Yeah, the other way is once you start your machine, I think if you, if you no. lower the volume. Wait, to, no, to no love either. on that suggestion, John? I mean, that's creative, like out of the box thinking right there. No love. I huh? like it, but, you know, there's liability concerns there. I mean, what if you hit somebody or a, but it is, it is, a, I, I don't agree with them forcing that behavior. And, and as I mentioned, uh, from what I recall on the Motorola Max, if you held down the mute button during startup, you and then pull the machine. All right. You know, just this once. Don't make that noise, and, and it would honor that. Yeah. Huh. All right. So let's move on to uh, let's move on to Jim. This was another interesting one that I think you're going to surprise me on, John. Hey guys, uh, Jim from Cincinnati here again uh, with a follow up to my question I sent. Oh, you that's today. right. You know, I was going to some... I was going to st stop this. Jim did send in two questions uh, or two audio files for the same question. The first one uh, was very very long. Uh, and then and then this one sort of explains it. What he's done is he's got uh, PDFs that he's annotating. Now, he's creating these PDFs using uh, Adobe's Acrobat ClearScan technology, which is actually pretty cool. It takes um, books and and turns them into font based PDFs so that they, they're very small and he can cart them around uh, on his uh, on his laptop. But so we'll but but as it turns out, Jim's issue isn't related to how he's creating the pdfs it, it's uh it's something else so uh the issue is that he is unable to do text search but he'll explain hey guys uh jim from cincinnati here again uh with a follow-up to my question i sent you yesterday i did some more testing last night uh and i found i think i found what the problem is but i still don't have a solution so as i said i create these files these uh clear scan ocr pdfs in acrobat and I go and I read them and I annotate them in Preview. And that's my preferred app to use. I like Preview for reading them over Acrobat. And I use uh, Snow Leopard has great uh, uh, annotation tools in Preview. You can highlight and draw boxes and, and you know, outline the text, take notes and everything. It's great uh, for taking notes on, on text PDFs. Uh, so what I did is I found out I, if I if I scan the file and I put it on my MacBook and I don't annotate it with preview, it's searchable and it works like it should. And this is probably why I was encountering some documents that were working because I had not annotated them yet. If I go into Acrobat on my MacBook and I annotate it using Acrobat's highlighting and text annotation tools and then I save it, it still works in Acrobat and in preview, the text is still searchable and, and everything's great. If I use preview to annotate it at all, highlighting it or anything, I save it. As soon as I save it, it then no longer works in Acrobat or in preview. 
And and that is where my problem is. And I was able to repeat this um, a couple of times to make sure that's what it was. So preview is somehow, when I'm using the annotation tools, is somehow changing the PDF so that the font and the text behind it is not there anymore or is corrupted or, or something's going on. And it's, it's re reproducible. I, I did it several times, like I said. So if anybody can tell me, uh, one of you guys or somebody in the audience, what is going on here and uh, how I can fix that, that'd be great. Thanks a lot. You bet. Okay, so uh, again, I'll I'll start and know that John has a, a better answer. But you know, my my I tested this right, John, and I I found a PDF and I annotated it. You know, it was a PDF created with something else. I annotated it in Preview, saved it, brought it back in. Uh, I did highlighting previews, uh, highlighting annotations, and link uh, in in Preview. So I, I created a you know a URL that I could click to, and the annotation stayed. And I was able to uh, to search, uh, and it, and the search worked fine. But you tried the same thing, John, and you had had exactly the same experience. That uh, yes, I did. Because I, I sorry about that. So you tried it, John, and uh, and and you had the same problem, the same experience that Jim is. You didn't use ClearScan. You just took another PDF and 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 did this, and had had uh, the same problem. You couldn't search. Is that right? Yeah, because I thought it was weird because you said, you know, you took one, you tried it. And I'm like, well, you know, that that's good enough for me. I'll, I'll go to the next question. And I'm like, you know what? Let, let me try it just for kicks. Just see what happens. So I took a PDF that had OCR ability, opened up an Acrobat, tried to search for a word. Um, I was able to find it, brought it into preview, annotated it. You know, I think I highlighted something and then I brought it back into Acrobat and I typed a word that worked before and it didn't work. And I'm like, What? That makes absolutely no sense. Then I went to the document. I'm like, you know, I, I wonder if it changed it, maybe from you know text to to a bitmap or something like that. But that wasn't the case because I was actually able to go into the document and highlight some text. Okay. Like, okay, that's weird. So it doesn't think it's a graphic. It still thinks there's text in here. Here's what started to lead me down the path. Is there some the index that goes away or something? No. Okay. No, no, no. You're, uh, you're so I highlighted the text, a, a portion of the text, and then I opened up another program. I think it was um, uh, a text edit, and I did a paste. Yeah. I got all little squares, uh, weird-looking uh, characters. Then I'm like, you know what I think's happening? I think it's maybe doing a Unicode translation. It's oh, writing it out as a double byte character set because it pasted the text, but it didn't look right. Huh. It didn't paste the same text. Now, even better, here, here's more investigation I did. So then I opened up Microsoft uh, Word. Yeah. And I pasted the text. Now, I think uh, Microsoft Word understands Unicode because the text appeared as I had pasted it, uh -huh. as I had copied it. But when I tried to do a find on a word, that also failed. So at least in Word, I think Word has a, has an ability to understand Unicode or, or you know double yeah. double word fonts that that uh, some of the other programs uh, shouldn't because we, you know at least our, our alphabet we don't use double byte character sets we don't need to. Um, then I'm like, what is behind this? Because then I open another document and it worked just as it worked with you. So here's the thing: what was the difference between the two? And I think I zoomed in on it. What was the difference? Here's the difference. So when I opened up uh, the document where after preview dealt with it, um, it, things got corrupted. I then opened it up in Acrobat Reader and I went to document properties 
and I looked at the fonts. And there were two fonts in the document that I had. Arial with a little TT, which is true type. Right. Embedded subset and Arial bold, bold embedded subset. Also a true type font. Okay. Then I took the document where it did work, and I did the same thing in Acrobat Reader and looked at the font. It was a um, PostScript font. Here's my speculation. And actually, I kind of confirmed this because I looked uh, and did find an Apple discussion thread about this. As far as I can tell, this is a bug in preview. Uh, it may not be true type fonts, but it may be a particular. It, it's definitely a font issue. Okay. Because with this true type font, when preview tried to write it out, and other people commented on this as well, they're, they're, they were basically saying, if I read it in once, or as soon as I write it out, it's corrupted, and I can never find the text again. So I think there's a subtle bug with maybe this specific true, true type font or true type fonts in general that preview writes it out for whatever reason as a double byte or a different uh, font yeah. that the programs then don't understand because they well, you mismatch. Can, my guess is they do understand it. They just, you're, you're not searching for the same right. characters that it has, right? I mean, if you were searching for double byte characters, I'm sure it would find them just fine. <laughs> yeah. The, the funny thing was, again, in Word, when I pasted the text in, I could read it. It was in English. But if I tried to find a word that was right in front of me, it failed. Oh, that's so interesting. So this is huh. a, I think it's a single double byte font, true type, but it's okay, so definitely let me, preview. Let me ask you this. So preview is causing this by doing the annotations or really any changes that force preview to rewrite this file out, right? When the document has, at least in my experience, when the document had a true type font okay. in it. And then preview can no longer search in the document. Have you tried Correct. searching from Acrobat? Does Acrobat yes. still search okay? No. Okay, so it's no, broken the you, PDF. It's not just a, right. a, a bug local localized to preview. Okay. Once preview has written this out, nobody, even though it still is text and you can cut and paste it, well, though when you paste it in certain programs, it makes no sense. Yep. It's gibberish. Um, once preview's done that once, you're, you're finished. Your, your OCR is done. And I even tried. And how, how about annotating or editing with PDF pen? Well, you know, it's funny because I actually, you know, I, I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, man, I, I, wow. I did my homework here. I, I didn't think, wow. Because so, I was like, you know, maybe something's weird here. So I tried to pull the document into PDF pen and it wouldn't offer to OCR it because the thing was, it was already text. Well, yeah. you this is, Well, this I was taking where I thought it maybe it translated it from text to, oh, uh, to bitmaps. Oh, I see. And I what, thought, oh, well, PDF pen will just. No, I mean, know, what if the, you what, skip the OCR? I mean, you've already got the text in there, right? He's already got the text from ClearScan. P, he's not having preview do any of the OCR. He's just dealing with the documents. Yes. My question is, if you just open that same PDF in PDF pen and do your annotations there instead of in preview, will oh, PDF pen write them out properly? And I think it will because I do most of my annotating of PDFs with PDF pen and I'm still able to search in them after I do it. I did not try that. So, okay. Yeah, okay. So try that. So, so yeah. So, so I suspect PDF pen. Yeah. It'll do it properly. It doesn't corrupt the font, but preview has the subtle bug that does. So, Very uh, interesting. Actually, you know, we, we got to get on the horn or, you know, Phil, if, if you're listening or someone, you know, you know, can, can you help us? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Man, that was a toughie because at first I'm like, what is going on? Why is it co kind of corrupting it, but not really? Right. 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 Cool. All right. So uh, uh, I, I would encourage him try to find out, uh, you know, look at the fonts in Reader. 
look at the fonts embedded in there. And I, I'd like to actually to get a Jim's feedback. I'd like to see if there's a trend as to what right. font either tr- style or kind. Um, kind in this case it was aerial true type okay. uh, i i'd be interested uh jim please let us yeah, know because it, it might just be if jim changes the font to something that's more you know uh, that, that that that's more compatible with the bug that exists in preview then then maybe his life is uh is totally fine yeah cool all right uh moving on to marion marion writes uh in an older show you mentioned that the way pop three email works is that it downloads emails to one place and that's it. Well, my company email accounts are definitely all pop three and all the incoming messages download both to my Mac and to my iPhone. Of course, there's no syncing. So when I read a message on one device, I have to manually mark it as read on the other as well. Nevertheless, just thought I'd ask how this actually works. And in a nutshell, pop three is built as a download only email protocol. um, Essentially, Mm -hmm. After downloading uh, your your email, then the, the client then has the option as to whether or not it leaves that message up on the server. Right. So most of the time, default behavior of most pop clients is that it's going to delete from the server either immediately or after some period of time. Maybe. Right. All right. So it deletes it from. Uh, the server, either, like I said, either immediately after a week, after, you know, some period of time. Uh, but you can set it to stay out there manually uh, and and only be deleted when you tell it to delete from the server. Now, you have to be careful with that, because, if you, you know, chances are you've got some accounting happening on the server where it, you know, you've got some maximum size uh, that your email can take up it. And then after that, it starts bouncing things. But that's how what uh, what you're doing here, Marion, works is that. Both of your email clients are at least for some period of time leaving all the mail on the server so that other clients can get them. There is a caveat here, though, uh, that sometimes the server will renumber the messages that are out there. If you go and if one client does a bunch of deletes, the other one might think, oh, hey, all these messages that I see are new when in fact they're not. And you wind up downloading duplicate messages. And that happens a lot with pop, uh, especially when you've got multiple clients managing the same account. And, and frankly, that's why IMAP uh, is, is better for this solution because IMAP uh, is a protocol that has all your mail stored on the server and then all the clients just syncing with it. So it it's built to be more of a two way um, kind of cloud client server uh, setup uh, with with IMAP rather than Pop. So so that that's why that works. But uh, but again, I, if you can, I, I highly recommend going with with IMAP. And although it's not perfect, a free op- a free option for IMAP these days is Gmail. So uh, it works fairly well. It's a, it's a little quirky uh, in terms of the way they do some things in it. And you may still have some of that message duplication because Gmail doesn't really use folders, uh, but they had to kind of approximate that for their IMAP implementation, but it's free. So you get what you pay for. And mobile me is IMAP as well. So, but you're paying for that. Yeah. I just, uh, I just actually, uh, I, I've been changing my uh, email setup here and actually I did migrate my, migrate my mobile me over to that. Cause Eudora does talk IMAP. Right. Um, interestingly enough, it creates a different inbox. It doesn't put it in my universal inbox where everybody else, all the other mail gets dumped. Uh-huh. Um, and, and just to add to what you said, Dave, so, so here's a little detail. And, and uh, I mostly, uh, yeah, everything you said, I think I'm... I'm, I'm uh, yeah, again with the audio. Okay, we're back in, John. Okay, so pretty much I'm, I'm with what you said there. I, I have one uh, 
little caveat. Sorry about that. That was a good for good for a laugh though. Uh, John, whatever I changed on the audio interface um, to reset it had you sounding like you were uh, about you know and half an octave or an octave lower. It was actually pretty interesting. But but we've got you back to normal now. So uh, so please continue. Okay, so quickly, um, I just want to describe pop and uh, where I think a problem may introduce itself and then then a, a little security or kind of a security tip. So okay. pop is RFC 1939, and, and we'll link to that. And the, the basic commands that you need, and actually, if you want to mess with this from the command line, you can do this. If you start up the terminal and do um, telnet, and then the name of your uh, pop server, which would probably be pop.something.com, uh, space 110, because that's the standard port that pop lives on, there are a number of commands that you can issue. Now, the, the first command, and I'll talk about this last, um, is when you log in. And normally you give your username and password. Those are a different thing to do, and I'll talk about that at the end. Then there's a, a really basic set of commands that, that you use to find out what's happening. The first one is called list. Here's what list does. When you say list, the server's going to list all of the messages that it has for you. And it's going to list two pieces of information. One is going to be uh, an ID starting with one, which is going to be, okay, this is message one. And then there's going to be a number after that, which is a should be a unique ID, which is what you were talking about, Dave. Right. Um, the next command is. Well, and, and to be fair, that ID will always be unique as far as the server's concerned. But should be. unique. It, yes. Yeah. It, but it should it, never repeat itself. Well, it should always be increasing. One would think for a particular account. Right. right? But, but oftentimes with pop, it resets back to one, which stinks. That's but, what that's but, what I saw. I mean, the other thing that, that I'll think and then I'll move on, um, is that the client sometimes, I think, keeps track of that ID. Yes. So it, and if the client is somehow interrupted or corrupted or something, and its opinion of what is new and old is different from the server, then it may either, and, and I've seen this happen actually right. with my POP account, this is where you may, my, may want to actually go into your POP account and do a list and see if there's anything there. Because I've seen it in cases, and I think it's because Eudora or whatever mail I was running crashed. I did a list, even though my mail client said there's nothing there. When I did a list, there were messages there. Um, and, very, uh, and, and then the other command, so the other is R-E-T-R. If you type R-E-T-R space and the message number, like one, it'll show you the text of that message. That doesn't delete it. What you got to do is actually say D-E-L-E. -E. That deletes a message. And that's what the pop, uh, and that's what your email program is doing uh, in roughly this order. So it says, all right, first log in, list all the messages, retrieve the messages, then maybe not now, maybe later, because it depends on how you set up your mail program, delete the messages, and then you, you get off of the server. So that's the mechanics of it. So, so yeah, I think we're, we're pretty much in agreement of, of how the whole thing works. Got it. The renumbering thing I've, I've never heard of, though, where the uh, server renumbers things, and that's, that's bad because, you know, the, the numbers should never, you know, they should always be increasing. Yeah. Happens all the time when, especially okay. when people start having po multiple pop clients pulling from the same server. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I saw that back in the, in the consulting days. It was just, it was, okay. it was okay. rampant. Yeah. Got it. Now here's the cool part. So, so I've been, you know, uh, upgrading my setup here and, you know, in addition to moving over to IMAP, I was checking out some of my email clients and one of them I was using with a basic username and password, which is not terribly secure. As a matter of fact, it's not secure at all. It's nothing about it that's secure. That's right. No, I mean, the only thing is that, you know, my, my wireless traffic is encrypted and, and uh, you know, I, I assume people are not, you know, watching. But, but I'm if watching. they were, I've changed the way I log in to prevent people from at least grabbing my username and password. And how do you do that? There's something called APOP. Okay. 
And this is a different way of logging in. So normally, so the basic pop is username and password. And right. actually, if you and that's to totally that, sent in clear text. If you're connecting yes. with standard pop over port 110, it is, right. you know, 100 percent clear text, username and password. Right. Without using a secure tunnel or SSL or right. something like that, which right. I suppose you could layer on it somehow. But yes. normally you don't. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. APOP is a little better because here's what APOP does. So rather than a username and password, and actually if you tell Net, you can type this. You type user space your username, and then it'll say, "All right, what's your password?" You type pass space and your password, and you're in. Okay. APOP, you do it a little differently. So on a single line, what you do is you type in your account name, and then following that, you type in not your password but something called a message digest. And you may have heard of these things like SHA-1 and MD5 and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, and in brief, there's something called one-way functions. Okay. What you need is, is a piece of information other than your password to combine with the password. And then you apply this, and it's something that's in, incomprehensible. And, and the cool thing about it, so here, here's the data that's into, into that, and then we'll, we'll move on. But, but I thought this was pretty interesting how this is done. Um, now, you may think, well, well, gosh, I'll just you know type in the username and then this message digest, and... And I'm in. I'll just copy that. Well, the thing is, you can't because here's what constitutes that other piece of data, what they call a shared secret. So when you log into the mail server, it will create a big glob of data, which includes the current process ID of the, um, the email process. Okay, that's right. something that's hard to guess, but not impossible. A timestamp and then the host name. And it lumps all that together. Now, here's the interesting part. You're probably, it, it, well, the thing is, this prevents what, what they call a replay attack. The thing is, if you see what someone sent one time, and you try to do it again, because the, either the process ID or the clock is different, you're not going to be able to come up with the same value. Oh, Get right. Get with this? Yep, I do, so sure. So it's a pretty yeah. clever way. So unless you can guess the process ID and the clock and the person's password and create this unique message digest, you're not going to be able to get into their account. So it's a better way of getting into the mail server than username password. And I just, I actually switched over um, my, uh, my Eudora to that and it works fine. The, the, you know, the server um, supports that protocol. So that's nice. So oh, that's if you good. have that option in your mail, you know, if it, it, rather than username and password, it's, it's a little better. You know, it's still now, better to get an SSL connection. I was going to say, can't you, wouldn't, wouldn't SSL be the preference here to secure either IMAP or POP? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. The problem is my provider does not offer oh. that because I enable that. I enabled SSL and, and it gets kind of squirrely because there's different ports and well, stuff. I was going to say, I, from what I remember, Eudora's implementation of SSL was only like half baked. Oh, no, it's fine. No, they have a number of options. The problem is when okay. I enable it, I get a message back from my mail server saying you asked for SSL and I'm not giving it to you because I can't do that. Oh, go, go okay. away. Okay, fair enough. No, the, Eudora works with Gmail and okay, .Mac um, using SSL. It works Perfectly fine. So Got their implementation it. is okay. They have a number of options. You know, you can use legacy SSL or TLS, which is something newer. Yep. Or, so you may have to fiddle with it in the port numbers, but Eudora supports that fine. The problem is my provider just, you know, Optimal Online just doesn't do anything except basic unencrypted uh, pop. Okay. It's really too bad. So I just want to add that caveat because I, was, I thought it was an interesting, uh, interesting addition. Yeah, that's it. Now we got a, and speaking of mail, Dave, speaking so, so of I think we're mail. done with that, right? We are done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're done. Way that's done. Good. Okay. Way we got done. Matthew and Matthew has a, a cool tip. Yeah. So um, Matthew writes, and I'm trying to think. Uh, he says, I have uh, 
uh, I'm trying to think of where to where to go with this. He says, I have spam sieve set up. Uh, he's talking about spam filtering and this issue of, you know, we have for years we've, you know, we've had mail on our Macs. And so we figured out how to filter spam there. Right. We, we run some third party software or, or maybe not third party. Right. Apple's mail has its own junk mail filtering that, it, you know, it works fairly well. And then there's some third party alternatives. There's spam. Spam sieve is, is the most popular, but but there's there's certainly others. Uh but the problem is none of those run on your iPhone. So what do you do? You know, certainly you could if you're using IMAP, you could have uh, the spam client on your Mac pull the mail out uh, from the mail folder and then it doesn't appear on your on your iPhone. But what happens if your Mac isn't running? So here is what uh, Matthew says. Matthew says, I have a. Uh, Spam sieve installed on my headless Mac mini at home, which is the master for my email. It is then possible to set up uh, drones by creating folders on the IMAP account called train good and train spam and running a little Apple script. So I have an iPhone, too many Macs and one copy of spam sieve running on my Mac mini. The rest of my computers and of course my iPhone don't run spam sieve. It's only running in this one place when I'm on the road. My Mac mini is doing all the spam filtering and all my other Macs reflect what the Mac mini has done because it's updating these changes to the IMAP server. Well, then, if I see a piece of spam either on my iPhone or one of my other Macs uh, that has not been caught by spam sieve on my Mac mini, I move the spam email into my train spam folder, which is a folder on the IMAP server, which then appears in my train spam folder on the Mac mini because of the magic of IMAP, uh, upon which a rule runs. And an Apple script and uh, boom, it's trained. Likewise, if I get a false negative on my iPhone because spam sieves got it wrong, uh, I move that to the train good. And again, I'm away. And he's given us a link to the Apple scripts, uh, the dr little drone Apple scripts that, that sit there and, and do this training for him. And, uh, and 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 this is actually a fairly simple thing to set up. You you know you create these extra folders on the IMAP server, and then you've got this going. And it very very similar to what I use here. We have a server side spam filtering solution uh, that runs on the mail server, but it's doing essentially the same thing. Uh, it we have to use a train good and a train bad folder. Essentially, there's three spam folders. There's the the place where it sends things that it thinks are spam. So in his case, spam sieve. In our case, it's de-spam on the server. And then we have the train good and the train bad, just like he does. And we put things there and then they magically disappear. So, uh, and, and disappear and train the, uh, the software. So very cool. Thank you, Matthew. This is a, this is a good solution. Well, we've got, uh, we've got a link that we'll put in the show notes. And of course, Michael Johnston will put it right here and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. So, you got anything to add to that, John, or are we, are we moving on? No, no, that's very clever. Yeah. I, I like it. It's good. I, I never thought about doing it with, you know, with a, a Mac doing that job, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all the same. It's, you know, six of one, half a dozen the other. And, uh, and that way you can use spam sieve and you've got a nice graphical interface to train it and mess with it. Um, oh, I got to say, I love spam sieve, man. When I it's look good. at the stuff that it grabs and throws in my junk folder, I mean, these guys, you know, they, they do clever misspellings and replace oh, yeah. numbers with letters and letters with numbers. And and it gets it uh, almost all, almost all every now and then. And, you know, as, as he suggests, you know, you can give it a little hint saying, ah, you missed this one. Because sometimes right. it's hard to tell. But but the ones that, the, you know, all the little tricks that, that they used to use. Uh, but this thing is is way smarter than they are. So, yeah. Awesome. So thank you very much, Matthew. That's uh, that's good. 
Good advice here. Uh, all right, let's move on to uh, Bob's audio comment. Hey, John and Dave. It's Bob from Marquette, Michigan. Uh, I'm running a, I'm using a MacBook, and I'm running uh, OS 10.6.2. I'm having some problems with Safari 404. Um, it's just started in the last three or four weeks where if I click a link in email to go to a web page or if I open a second uh, fi- a second window, browser window, uh, there's no uh, toolbar. And I have to go into the view menu and choose show toolbar. Um, it, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens about half the time, uh, half to three quarters of the time. And uh, I tried uh, dumping Safari's preferences. That didn't do any good. I've rebuilt permissions. Uh, can't figure this one out. If you can offer me any help, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. All right, so this is interesting. Uh, in theory, you would think that dumping the prefs would would have have wiped this out, but obviously something's causing it to continue to happen. Um, the first thing I would do is to look for any new or updated Safari plugins that are installed on your computer, and those are installed in the main hard drive library slash uh, internet plugins and also in the home folder library and internet plugins. Uh, the other thing to check and, and look in there and, and, and take a look and see if there's anything there. Another place to check is, is uh, the same two, you know, either library or home library and input managers. Uh, and there's a piece of third party software that's old, but it works called Diabloten, D-I-A-B-L-O-T-I-N. It's available for free. Hasn't been updated in about three years. But uh, but it, it works and it's essentially like the remember the old extensions manager in uh, in Mac OS nine where you had the ability to turn things on and off and all it did was move it into or out of a folder. Uh, so you weren't deleting anything, but you were able to manage and Diabloten will let you manage your Internet plugins as well as your input managers and turn them on and off very quickly uh, without deleting them. So you can do some testing and that's where I would start. Turn off those. See if it see if it comes back. Um, if oh, it. And- Go ahead. Browser? Uh, no, turning them off in Diabloten, right? You quit Safari. No, but but you're saying browser plugins. Browser internet plugins, yes. Okay, no, there's another program that I found um, called Plugin Cool. Okay. That has a web browser section as well, and I think this is a slightly newer program. Oh, I have to check. But this I think out. it does something okay. pretty similar. I mean, it shows each plugin. I'm looking here: Real Player, Picasa, Google, yeah. Lens, Silverlight, blah blah blah. And it has a little check mark. So similar, but. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's slightly newer, so I thought I'd uh, mention that. Ooh. Plug in cool. Oh, I'll have to check that out. That that sounds like that might have taken over for uh, for Diabloten here, which is an old standby for that I use for these things. But that's great. Uh, and then you know some of these plugins. Remember, Safari might be running in sixty four bit mode, and you might have a plugin that was written for thirty two bit. Now, in theory, that would just disable the plugin because uh, the plugin wouldn't load. Uh, but you could also try running Safari in 32-bit mode, and you do that by uh, quitting Safari, going to the Finder Applications, highlight Safari, and choose a Get Info, and then check the little box that says Open in 32-bit mode, um, and see if that helps. I, that, I, I'm not sure about that one, but there was some Apple discussions about about that happening, so I, I figured I'd mention it. But but really, I think it's probably a plugin. Uh, I can't imagine what else it would be. Um, you got any, got any other thoughts, John? 
No, I'm with you. I, I, I've seen plugins fight with each other. Uh, Silverlight, I've seen uh, oh, yeah. mess up some other, uh, you know, animation and display. Uh, right. Plugins. So. Uh, okay. Are we ready to move on to Steve here? Oh, you're going to love the thing I got for this. I think Steve's going to love the thing you've got because, okay, so here's the deal. Steve wrote, uh, I have a Mac mini connected to my TV solely for watching video in my main iMacs in a separate room. My main Mac has, or my main Mac, I'm not sure he didn't say iMac, but it doesn't matter. My main Mac has my video stored on it, and I have set the Mac mini to mount the drive uh, from my main Mac at startup by dragging the mounted network drive into my login items. I do video through Plex, which also opens at login. So far, so good, and the setup works great. The problem arises if I reboot my main Mac because the mini loses the network share. I have to manually remount the share or reboot the Mac mini. None of these options are great because a, I don't want to have a keyboard and mouse permanently attached to the mini and B I would like peace without my better half shouting up the stairs at me because a movie won't play. Uh, I totally get this. You want, you know, you want the living room and I'm, I'm like this. I, I have a lot of technology in my living room, but I have my tolerance for faults there or for any sort of errors is like zero. And that's not just because it, it, it you know, I'm tech support for the family. It's because when I'm in the living room watching TV, I, that's my downtime. I don't want to have to be troubleshooting all this crap. And that's why Netflix streaming drives me crazy. But for another time, back to Steve, what I'm looking for is either a better way of mounting the drive that will reconnect it when it becomes available again after a reboot or a nice third-party app that will notice a lost share and do the mounting for me automatically once the drive is again available. Trying to solve that last issue, I found Reconnector X, but it doesn't look as though it's actively updated anymore. Do you have any suggestions? Okay, so my the, the thing I wrote to him, I said, well, no, I don't have a suggestion. However, you could create an Apple script that does, you know, tell application finder, mount volume, and then, you know, the path to the volume and tell, right? And and then you have that run every five minutes or something. You use a, like Cronx or Cronit or something uh, to set it to run every five minutes. And Steve did this. Steve went and built this Apple script and he ran it. The problem was it was mounting a new volume every time. So instead of, let's say the volume is called videos, right? So it would be in slash volume slash videos. Then after five minutes, he would have slash volume slash videos and slash volume slash videos dash one. And then after 10 minutes, slash volume slash videos dash two, etc. So the next thing to try, I told him was, you know, see if you can figure out. And I didn't know the Apple script uh, to figure this out directly but you know you could do a terminal command to to you know sense whether slash volume slash videos was there and if it wasn't then do the uh the the mount otherwise skip that and you know every five minutes he's good to go so he was off on that path and i think he i think he's in the midst of that now uh but john you you got uh you got oh. something else here and i think i solved part of the problem but but okay. there's part of this that i know you're gonna love so anyways i decided apple script's cool and everything let me see if Automator can do this. Right. So I fired up Automator and I built something to do this. And I'll go over very briefly what I did. Now, this only seems to work. Well, no, I think this will work on, on both Leopard and Snow Leopard. So I went into Automator. The first thing when you start up Automator is it says, what would you like to do? Would you like to build a workflow? Blah, blah, blah. Sure. There's a bunch of things. Um, for my testing. Uh, so I think what he really wants to do is to build an application to do this. But for my testing... I did an iCal alarm. 
because I know how much you love iCal, Dave. And this worked. Check this out. But then I'm, I'm going to back you up on, on a, a deficiency in iCal. Okay. So I'm like, you know, in order for me to test this quickly and just, just to fool around with iCal, let me define this as an iCal alarm. Right. Sure. So once I did that, so once you de- you define the type of workflow, you then select from all the choices um, of things available in the library section of Automator. And, and everything that you need here is in the files and folders uh, subcategory under library. Okay. And the first one is get specified servers. And what you do there is that particular action asks you for a path to the server. Now, when you select one, uh, there's a, a, one thing I had to do is that if you have multiple mount points on your server, it's only going to do something like AFP colon slash slash 10 dot blah, blah, blah. You'll have to type in slash in the name of the share if you have more than one share. Because sure. otherwise, a dialogue will come up saying, like, for example, I have like six shares on my, my uh, G5. Okay. okay. So it came up and said, well, which one of these? So I typed in, you know, the IP address slash, you know, John Braun, for example. Right. Um. Then the other part is that when it asks for the username and password, and, and then the next action was connect to servers. So there are two actions that I defined, get specified servers and connect to servers. What happens then is, um, so then I made an iCal alarm out of that. And then what it does is it actually creates a new category in iCal yeah. and puts a little event there. And what happens is when the event comes up, rather than giving you, you know, a little dialog box and making a little beep sound, It'll run this automator action, which I thought was freaking cool. Yeah, yeah, here's it's the a bad it's a, news. It's like a poor man's cron. Uh, yes, here's yeah. the bad news, and then I'm like, oh, you know what? Let me see if I can get this to run every five minutes. And here's the part where I agree with you: iCal sucks. The lowest resolution you can do on running something, I think, is once per day. I don't even think you can do it once per hour. Wow, an event can only come up. Once per day, once per week, once per month. And I've seen a lot of people howling about this in, in various iCal forms because I'm like, you got kidding me. I'm like, can I say like, you know, point one of a day or, or whatever to be kind of clever? And it's like, no, nope, nope. Nope. You can only make an event recur at a minimum once a day. Now, if anybody knows a way to refine that, that'd be great. I mean, I even hacked around and enabled a debug menu in iCal to see if there's a way to change this. Because then to me, this would actually work. And then here's the other cool part of this. So then once the volume was mounted and it gets around this problem, Dave, I thought, well, gosh, I'm probably going to run into the same problem that I've heard about before is if you have a volume mounted and it's ready there, it's going to say, well, I better make a volume dash two, dash three, dash four, add infinitum. Right. It didn't do that. When I set this up okay. again with the volume already mounted, I saw something bounce in the dock, bounce, 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 and it went away. And I looked in the slash volumes directory and there was not a dash two. So it's okay. smart enough. So the automator action is smart enough not to create another instance and, and get you into that, that whole per- unpleasant situation. Perfect. So so Steve's answer here, unless he's figured it out with Apple script, which, of course, is totally doable because automator is like this, you know, granddaddy thing that, that you know, runs on top of that. But um is is to to create exactly the same automator action. Maybe you could be nice enough and email what you made to him. Um and and then use Chronix, right, which yeah. is a, a GUI, a Mac OS X, you know, GUI front end to the Unix cron utility, which allows you to schedule things, I believe, down to the minute. You can't do it any more frequently yeah. than once once per minute, but that's plenty. Uh, so, you know, you could set it to do it every five minutes and then it just runs this little automator application right. and you're good. Exactly. To go. yeah. yeah. He would not want to do iCal. I thought it was kind right. of clever, but but iCal, again, I agree with you, it's <sighs> lacking. But if he makes an application, as long as this utility can launch a, a application every five minutes, yep, 
it should work great. All right. So, so wait a minute. We got to we, we, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing something here. You know, you've created this. Uh, we last week we had or earlier this week. We had uh, someone I can't remember his name. Finbar created uh, an Apple script. We've got to have a Mac Geek app file repository. Uh, and maybe drop.io is the answer. I've heard other podcasters check this out. So I'm going to ask you to check that out, John, and see, see what you think. But I, I think I think we got to find something because there's these all these files that we all want to share here. And uh, and, and, I, and there's got to be some way of doing it because I think it would be great. Or a public uh, Dropbox or something. I don't know. Well, I think that's what drop.io does. I think oh, it's oh. essentially a public Dropbox sort of sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So well, we got to figure this out because there's, there, you know, it, what, what I hate is, you know, hearing you mention this and then think, oh, I want to be able to share that with the listeners and not saying that because we don't have some easy way to do so. And it's like, oh, we got to upload it to the FTP server and then it's got to sync to the cash fly and this. And, and that's great for the audio and the big, big files. But but, you know, there's got to be something out there where we can have this this repository for for all this. Well, stuff in the meantime, I mean, create, everybody who has Dropbox gets a public. Dropbox folder, yeah, which would be read only. So, so I think in the interim, I, I'll I'll toss it there. Okay, cool, cool. And I, I should be, able to, yeah, we should be able to link to that. Yeah, you can link to that. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. Cool. All right, awesome. So that that was a lot of fun though, because I really haven't, you know, I got a little extra time on my hands these days. Uh, yeah, I was like, you know, let me learn some Automator, and I, I was really kind of impressed at how easy it it, it made the whole operation. It's actually, great, man. And I actually just used Automator the other day. Another thing, I'm sorry, tangents, but it's you know, okay. part what of what we do. Yeah. So I've also been doing some more, uh, you know, work with various web pages that I do, you know, with the uh, pictures that I like to take and share. And I wanted to apply uh, Google Analytics, which is okay. pretty cool. I don't know if, if uh, you're using that. Sure. At all. Yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the things we, we have running over at TMO. Yeah. Yeah. it's really nice. And, yeah. and I think a lot of people use it and it basically is a, you know, free thing from Google. You, you uh, embed some JavaScript in your web page. And then they tell you all sorts of statistics without identifying, as far as I can see, anybody specifically. But it gives you aggregated things like here's where people are coming from. Here's, you know, pages they visited and here's here's how long they stayed on the site. And just really useful things, I think, to fine tune, you know, or find problems with your website. The problem is I use iWeb now because I really like the iWeb and uh, iPhoto integration. But the problem is iWeb isn't very friendly in that it, it whacks some things. Okay. Like, for example, it gives you the ability to embed HTML in your page, but this isn't quite good enough. Um, Google Analytics wants that code embedded in there directly. Yeah, yeah, it needs it so that uh, the client can run a, a JavaScript that, right. that gives it all that information. So iWeb right. is lacking in that you can put HTML snippets, which allows you to put in things like AdSense and uh, Google Search and stuff, but not analytics. Uh. Interesting. And even if you put the code in there afterwards, you edit the HTML file directly. The next time iWeb, you go to publish, it's like, ah, I don't know what this is. I'm just going to erase it. So it's kind of unfriendly <laughs> in that respect. Nice. But somebody wrote something. I don't have the name of it, but I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's basically an automator action that will take the uh, JavaScript and you include like a campaign ID or something. And it basically rips through your iWeb folder and basically takes all your HTML and puts this where it should be. And it does it very, very quickly. There, there's some standalone apps that do this, but this this does it very, very quickly, and it's an automator, either application or service you can put in the service menu, depending on how you want to do it. Um, so I'm digging automator uh, more and more. The more that yeah. I see people uh, leverage it, it's uh, awesome. It's awesome. In fact, I, I have uh, I have something with our automator scripts that I need to figure out. So maybe I'll I'll, I'll run that by you, and you come up with a uh, magic little answer for us. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a good, uh, you know, uh, G- I'll give, give you a discount. Good rates. That's awesome. <laughs> well, actually, you know, in exchange for the horrible advice, <laughs> this one will be free in, in exchange for the horrible <laughs> advice I gave you in the past. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, all right. Still, well, we're not going to talk about that now, but no, we're not. You're, you're on the case. We're on the case. Yeah, the we're, audio case. We're, we're slowly moving down the path. It is that we've had a couple of glitches this show. It, it believe it or not, it is better. And I, I have an idea, but I, I, we'll just we'll leave it at that. Uh, last question for the show. Stefan writes, I'm currently thinking about getting a new iMac. Since I currently use an SSD internally in my Mac mini, I'm thinking about how to get the best performance hard disk wise out of the iMac. I do not want to open up the iMac myself. So my idea is put the SSD into an external enclosure and connect it via FireWire 800. The question is, will FireWire 800 be so slow that I won't see any difference between the SSD and the iMac's internal drive? Okay, I, I can I can talk about this because I've I've done this this when I. Last summer, when we did the SSD obsession, uh, I got the SSD drive from Runcore. But, you know, there's many vendors out there now. Uh, And the first thing I didn't want to open up my MacBook Pro, just like you don't want to open up your iMac. Eventually, I did open my MacBook Pro because the whole portability thing trumped my desire to uh, leave my hands out of my computer. So uh, as you might remember, I ran on USB Initially, so this was USB, so, you know, uh, half the speed of your FireWire 800, essentially. And uh, I instantly noticed the speed difference from SSD in terms of the uh, near zero latency. Or in other words, you know, the the way a hard drive uh, works is you've got a bunch of uh, platters spinning around and then you've got like the the drive head. It's kind of like an old record player for those of us that remember old record players where you've got a needle and the record spinning around. But the difference is the uh, it, on a, in a hard drive, the needle jumps all over the place. Right. So if you know, you've got uh, let's say you've got a file that's 10 blocks in size. Well, all 10 of those blocks don't have to be right next to each other. You might have two in one spot and then, you know, four in another and then, you know, three in another and one somewhere else. And so the dry the, the, the needle or the, the head has to jump all over the place. And that's called latency. You know that, that, that when you're talking about hard drives, it's the seek time. How long does it take to get to wherever it is that I can then begin reading the data that you've requested? And, and that can be not insignificant, especially for some reason in laptop drives where it's just terrible, um, regardless of the speed of the drive. You know, we're talking about what it takes to get to the point where you're going to start reading data, not the reading or writing of the data itself. So SSD, there is no platter spinning. There is no needle. There is no drive head. It's just essentially RAM. And you go to the drive and you say, get me this data. And it says, sure, here it is. Get me that data. Sure, here it is. And it's not quite no latency, but it's minimal. Very, very minimal. Uh, So you see that regardless of the interface, right? Be it USB, eSATA, FireWire, you know, IDE, it doesn't matter. You're going to get that benefit because that's happening inside the drive. Now, most SSD drives nowadays are going to be able to transfer data. You know, some of them, it's, you know, 100 megabytes a second, right? Megabytes a second. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And then up up to more data on that. Okay, up to, you know, some of them are doing over 200. Right. And and my run core drive is one of those. Now, um, that's where you will not see the full speed benefit 
of your uh, of your drive because FireWire 800 is essentially going to do about 80 megabytes a second. And I'm rounding very, very, you know, grossly here. But essentially, that's what you get out of USB. You got about 40. Um, But, you know, so but but that may not matter to you. I have to say, when I moved my run core drive from USB, which was essentially 40 to uh, to inside my Mac, which then let it do about 140 um, because my fire, my eSATA interface in the Mac is only, you know, one and a half um, gigabit throughput or whatever. Um, it got better. Uh, it, I mean, it, rather it didn't, I, I tested the speeds and you know, th- it showed, yes, you're transferring data much faster, but I noticed no user level, um, speed right. benefit when I, it, it, my, my experience, my user experience did not change in a speed fashion when i moved the drive inside the computer i noticed no difference the biggest difference i noticed was moving from the mechanical hard drive to the solid state hard drive uh, and it didn't matter how it was connected i'm not doing huge data transfers though if you are then you may notice that ssd is faster and that's why a lot of the you know hd video people and, and all that are going to these ssd raid units where they're just getting this ridiculous throughput on eSATA that you just can't get out of out of mechanical hard drives but uh, but as long as that's not your goal then i think on your firewire 800 you're going to see it's going to be great i think you're going to i think you're going to be fine so john but you, john you've got something to add here i got something to add so, so you're absolutely right i did some uh, calculations and actually used google to do some of these translations so the thing is you will run into a limitation with firewire 800 before you run into a limitation of the drive performance well a few comments so one right. FireWire 800 is 800 megabits per second, which is 100 megabytes per second. Okay. Now, if you're talking a drive, and, and I looked at Tom's hardware, I have a fairly recent article, and right now I think the state-of-the-art, at least affordable, that aren't like these huge, you know, fiber channel arrays, because I saw some that advertised a thousand, like, let, oh, yeah. let's talk about drives that humans can afford here. The the, the best <laughs> one I think right now is, is one of the Intel higher-end ones. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Dave, about 200 megabytes per second is the theoretical maximum throughput if you're talking, I think, uh, the ideal operation, which is a sequential read. Well, right? but because but, there are different operations, or, or at least the way that they qualify the performance of the drive is depending on the operation you're doing. And I think okay. the best performance you get is when you're doing, let me see what this blue bar means. Yeah, I think it's sequential read. All right, and check, you know, I know that the OWC drives the from uh, Otherworld Computing are spec'd out faster than 200 megabytes a second. So if speed right. is your thing, go check those out too, because I think they're about 240 right. is where they clock in. Because even, at least the chip, so you and I both have the same MacBook. The chip that we have in there is called an ICH8-MAHCI. Yeah. And as you pointed out, it's a 1.5 gigabit per second chip, which comes out to 192 megabytes per second. Right. So even that could potentially be a limiting factor, because then you're starting yeah. to reach the theoretical maximum of the drive. Now, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think you're going to see sustained 200 megabytes per second operation out of this drive Got all it. the time. Got it. You may, again, I think mostly with a read operation on a big contiguous file. Yeah, well, um, take contiguous out of this. Or not contiguous, right? sing, it's a single A file. single file, that's right. One, one sustained read as opposed to Get me, you right. know, so here because late, you're right. Latency doesn't matter. So, so right. if you're reading a big whopping multi gigabyte file, right. you're probably going to approach the theoretical maximum of the drive. Now, the thing is, and I've heard people howling about this. The thing is, there's different flavors of SATA. 
SATA one is supposed to be, uh, which is the interface inside of the Mac, serial right. TA. SATA one is 1.5 gigabytes per second or gigabits. Yes. SATA two is 3.0 gigabits, and then SATA three is 6.0 gigabits. Now, I've heard people comment that I think Apple, for whatever reason, kind of crippled the chip in our machine where it could do three, but it could, or I, I know I've seen yeah. some commentary where people were upset that it was 1.5 when they felt it should not be, it should have been able to do three. And they did that with newer MacBook pros too. And then offered a firmware update that bumped it up to three, but you and I were left out in the cold, John, we we're, we're stuck at one and a half. And, and like you said, it's, it, it you know, it's almost inconsequential. Um, you know, without the, the SATA drives, it is inconsequential. But to me, the interesting thing is that the so in the past, typically from what I've seen, the bus speed, be it SATA or, ATA or parallel ATA. Now that we're calling it, calling it that because now they're serial. Right. The right. bus speed would always far exceed, maybe not by an order of magnitude because they love orders of magnitude, but it would far exceed the speed of the drive. Now you're getting to the point where the speed of the bus and the speed of the drive are starting to approach each other. Yeah, that's which right. Which is, I think, very unusual. It's yeah. something that I think a lot of people didn't expect. Well, so, and it used now, to be, set, yeah, it ahead. used to be that, it, you know, certainly with FireWire 800, but even FireWire 400 was faster than, you know, 99% of the hard drives that any consumer would ever buy. Right. I mean, you know, you, you could go buy some FireWire 800 drive and, but the thing was, it was like, well, but if the drive is going to do like 30 megabytes a second, well, you know, what do I care? You know, great. I've got all right. this room on the bus, but who cares? But, so but you're think, right. Now it's an issue. So I think what we're going to see is that now, now, fortunately, SATA 2 and SATA 3 are in the wings with the 3 and the 6 gigabit per second right. throughput. And I think that's going to, for the time being, stay ahead of at least the throughput of a you know single uh, consumer level, you know, somewhat affordable SSD. Right. Until you go, uh, you know, some multi-channel array where you've got multiple drives, and and that's well, where I you found can that really start. I, I did a search. Speed. I did a search, and I was shocked because I saw now, now again. Oh, yeah. This is for enterprise deployment, but I saw some, you know, uh, SSD arrays that were, were were in the thousands of megabytes per second. Oh yeah. Like, Wait a second. Did I read that right? And it's like yes. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's you almost know, like they, fiber channel. It's when, when you get all these drives going through a really fast bus. Right. And they're all operating in tandem, maybe with some sort of raid or something like that. Yeah. You could you could be talking high speeds. And when you're in an enterprise, you need that. Well, it's it really what they're using them for is video, um, you know, right. HD right. video, uh, nonlinear editing and that sort of thing. They'll they'll rent out units that have these so that you can do all your editing and then, you know, you don't have to buy it. And then you just return the uh, the unit once you're done with your your deal. So. All right. Uh, where are we? Oh, you said that was the last question. So I think that's the time to bring in the band. Hi, band. <laughs> cool. Dude, you uh, rocked it this show. I was doing my homework, man. I know. It shows. It's awesome. I, I think I hit it out of the park. I don't know if I hit it out of the park. But, I think uh, you did. Right, what do you yeah. folks think? You think John hit it out of the park? <laughs> I do. I think so. This is good. Uh, we, uh, we should. I know you're all premium subscribers, and I know you know how to find us, but we're going to say it anyway. Who uh, likes it? What's that? We'll say I it. I like saying Two, it. 206-666-GEEK is the number. 4335. Yes, John, I beat you to it, but the email address is... Feedback at MacGeekGab.com, Dave. That's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. But if you're listening to this, you probably want to use premium. premium. That's right. 
Yes. In fact, please do. Uh, it really does help us, uh, you know, segregate the questions and, and know. And, and we can, you know, but between us here, we answer your questions first if we're going through the email. So, you know, hey, it, it is what it is. It's a little bit extra that, that, that we can still yeah. do. So we do it. Because you're special. Just don't tell the other people. That's right. <laughs> um, iPhone Alley. Michael Johnston's home. That's uh, that's where he uh, spends his days. Uh, when he's not converting this podcast to AAC for us and all of you. And Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com, provides all the bandwidth to get this podcast to you. And that's it. We're out of here, John. Let's do it. All right. It's still daylight. It's Excellent. Still daylight. I got to drive to Boston tonight. Really? Yeah, I got to oh, Be careful. Thanks. It could be uh, snowy. I know. Well, I don't know. No, I hear this uh, tonight, tomorrow. Ooh. Who knows? careful, be safe, have fun, and don't get caught. Maynard.